The Jodcast. Low-cost, high scientific impact. With David Alt, Adam Avison, Jen Gupta, Stuart Lowe, and Tim O'Brien. The Jodcast. October 2009 Extra Edition. Hello and welcome to the Jodcast. And joining me again in the Jodcast studio is Jen Gupta with Adam Averson. Hello, guys. Hello, everyone. Hi. And as you may notice, I am back in the studio again, once again, training for Jodcast Live, where we're all going to be in the same studio with several of our listeners. So a reminder, if you still want a ticket, there are tickets available 21st of November. Get in touch through the usual channels. And when you say tickets, um, it is all free. Yes. You don't have to pay anything yes. for it. Free tickets. Absolutely free. free yeah, tickets. so we're going to be starting at about 1pm at Jodrell Bank and hope to be finished by about 5 where we'll go to a local pub for a nice drink. That sounds good to me. Uh, what we'll be doing is uh, having a tour of the Jodrell Bank Observatory and then recording the December edition of the Jodcast right in front of your very eyes, including the panto, which will be even more fun. With special effects by Adam. Yes. I'm very excited about that. <laughs> I've bought my coconut halves already, so... <laughs> uh, just to introduce Adam, he is uh, one of our editors and uh, one of our newest Jodcast juniors, so welcome to presenting the show, Adam. Yeah, I like that he's a junior, even though he's older than me. Not that much older. <laughs> <laughs> Enough to make me feel superior about not being a junior anymore. So in the show this month, Tim O'Brien will be answering your astronomy questions, and we'll be hearing about exciting new discoveries at Saturn, but first, before all of that, here's an interview by Stuart Lowe, who found out more about the Moonwatch event happening from the 24th of October to the 1st of November. OK, we're joined by Steve Owens, who's the UK International Year of Astronomy 2009 coordinator. Hi, Steve. Welcome to the Jodcast. Hi, Stuart. Thank you. And you've been, well, I guess you've been extremely busy this year with a million and one things for the IYA. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's been a fantastic year, and hopefully many of your listeners have been able to take part in a year of astronomy event. Now, early on in the year, there was the 100 Hours of Astronomy, and in the UK, we had the Spring Moon Watch, and we're coming up to a second round of Moon Watch. Can you tell us a bit about it? That's right. As you said, back in spring this year, we had the 100 Hours of Astronomy Global Cornerstone Project, which coincided with our Spring Moon Watch event here in the UK. The reason we decided to do the Spring Moon Watch was that we didn't think 100 Hours uh, guaranteed us clear weather in the UK. Uh, so we, we decided to extend it to, to nine days in spring and to replicate it in October. Um, and that's coming up as Autumn Moon Watch. And because of the success of 100 Hours and Spring Moon Watch, the Global Steering Group decided that they would also run another cornerstone project called Galilean Nights, which is running from the 22nd to the 24th of October, kind of preceding our Autumn Moon Watch, which runs from the 24th of October to the 1st of November. Right. And... What sort of things are going to be happening during Galilean Nights and particularly in the UK for Autumn Moonwatch? Well, we're encouraging all the amateur societies, all the university outreach departments, planetariums and observatories to get outside, get somewhere in a public square, out in the street, out in a park, take telescopes, do some observing to allow people to look through a telescope for the first time. And we're hoping that there will be literally hundreds of events happening in the UK during Autumn Moonwatch and similarly hundreds of events happening worldwide. We already have um, close to 200 events registered for Ottoman Watch and more are coming in every day. So we're hoping it will be a real opportunity for anyone who wants to look through a telescope to do so. And are they registered on your website? They absolutely are. If you visit astronomy2009.co.uk and click on find your local events, 
You can search by postcode. You can search a radius of 25 miles up to 500 miles. You can set a date range, and that will show you every event that's happening, not just the Ottoman Watch events, of course, but events throughout the rest of the year. Yep. And is it easy for people to add their own events to that list? It certainly is. Um, they can email me. My contact details are on the website. Uh, they can download a registration document from the resources section of that website. Uh, and as soon as that gets to me, I can upload their event within a matter of minutes to our website very easily. And as another aspect of, of Moonwatch is making use of Twitter. Can you tell us a bit about that as well? That's right. We've been doing quite a few fairly innovative Twitter events over the course of uh, the International Year of Astronomy. And I think it's fair to say that the UK are leading the way in, in Twitter and the new media in astronomy. And um, to date, we have run two events, one of which was um, kind of an impromptu Moonwatch back in uh, May 2009. Um, we, we, along with Newbury Astronomical Society, just decided one night that we would start live tweeting images of the moon, uh, the planet Saturn, and various other objects that were up in the sky. And in addition to that, we also ran a Twitter meteor watch to coincide with the Perseid meteor shower in August, which was incredibly successful. We had 10,000 people taking part over two nights of Twitter meteor watch. We had massive publicity in virtually all the TV channels and uh, news, print media. So we decided we'd continue that success. We're running a Twitter Moonwatch event on the Monday and Tuesday of Autumn Moonwatch. That's the 26th and 27th of October. If anyone's interested in taking part, they can follow at Astronomy 2009 UK or at Newbury AS on Twitter and uh, we'll be tweeting live images of the moon. If you'd rather just have a uh, do a search on Twitter, you can search the hashtag hash moonwatch close to the time and you'll find all the images there too. And I must say the meteor watch was great fun watching that in real time as people were posting their, their pictures of um, Perseids and, and just general pictures of them observing and things like that. It, it was incredible and, and the thing that was, that was most satisfying about the whole thing was the fact that the vast majority of people who were taking part weren't really astronomers. They hadn't really much of an interest before that in, in observing. They had just heard about it through the media. They'd heard about it through Twitter. And we had people who genuinely had seen their very first shooting star, and that was a real, a real proud moment for all of us. And I guess this, because it's on Twitter, it, it spreads outside of the UK as well. It does. Um, we were assisted by Kansas Astronomical Society, who helped us keep the Twitter Meteor Watch going. As the sun came up in the UK, of course, it was dark in the US. So it, it definitely was a global event, and we're working with uh, the Kansas Astronomical Society again to make sure that both of our all our Twitter events coming up in the future are global in scope. Uh, and out of the 10,000 people taking part, I'm pretty certain there are many people outside the UK from all around the world. Well, it sounds good fun, and we should advise people if they want to register an event to go to astronomy2009.co.uk. If you if you don't have your own telescope, find an event that's near to you and go along and have a look at the moons of Jupiter or our moon or other other objects that people can show you. That's right, and uh, it's important to say that the dates for Otto Moon Watch were chosen so that the moon is at a good phase. Uh, the planet Jupiter is up, although quite low on the horizon, uh, and there are plenty of other good deep sky objects to look at too. Great. Well, thank you very much for giving us a, a quick summary of Autumn Moonwatch. Thanks, Stuart. Thanks, Stuart. And talking about the moon, we've got some news about Elcross. Now, if, like me, you twitched on Facebook on the 9th of October and found people complaining about NASA bombing the moon, well, we've got a little bit of news here to just allay your fears. Jen. So the media reporting on this Elcross mission has been somewhat unscientific. There's been a lot of reports of NASA bombing the moon when, in fact, Elcross just impacted into the surface. And according to Chris North on Twitter, 
impacts of this magnitude on the moon actually happen about four times a month. So it's not like NASA have really done anything out of the ordinary. It's just that for this one, we're in the right place at the right time to actually see what comes up. A lot of people were looking out for plumes from this impact and unfortunately nothing was really seen. If you watch the video from NASA of the impact, it's pretty boring. Which to me is actually quite interesting because it means that the impact site could be hard rock or something that doesn't send up a lot of ejecta. I think this is uh, something that's a bit of a problem in the media where, for example, the Large Hadron Collider was touted to be creating black holes that would destroy the world when really it's the kind of energies that are up in the atmosphere at the moment, we are just in the right place and the right time to observe it. Yeah, I mean, obviously saying that NASA are bombing the moon is going to generate a lot more interest in their newspapers or websites than just saying there's going to be an impact. Mm -hmm. It's understandable why they did that, but it's very frustrating as scientists to then have this backlash from the public. Mm -hmm. Especially about people complaining that their money, their public money is being spent on terrorism, <laughs> interstellar <laughs> <Space> terrorism, terrorism. <laughs> yes. That's another point, actually. Elcross was, I can't get the exact, I can't find the exact figure, but Elcross was a relatively cheap mission for NASA. It was kind of piggybacked along with the LRO, the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. So they were sent up on the same rocket and it was just a nice little cheap mission to hopefully find out more about water on the moon. Mm -hmm. So I think an all-round success for NASA there, really, and uh, several minus points for the media for reporting it. But something that has been reported well in the press, it's Saturn's new ring. Now, the Cassini spacecraft arrived in orbit around the planet Saturn in July 2004. Two years ago, in late 2007, we talked to Professor Carl Murray of the Cassini spacecraft imaging team and found out about the discoveries that Cassini had made whilst looking at the rings and moons of Saturn. Stuart caught up with Carl again to get the latest news on this Lord of the Rings. OK, we're joined by Professor Carl Murray from Queen Mary University of London. Welcome back to the Jodcast, Carl. Nice to be back. As Dave was saying before, you were last on Judcast at the end of 2007, and you're a, a member of the Cassini spacecraft imaging team, which is very exciting. The Cassini's been returning some great results for the past um, five years, I guess. That's right, yes. We're, we're five years into the, the, the mission around Saturn anyway, yes. You've been exploring the, the moons and rings of Saturn, and in the news recently, we've had some results which aren't um, specifically from Cassini, but they're from another spacecraft that's actually closer to the Earth, the Spitzer Space Telescope, and it's been doing some observations of Saturn and found something interesting. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Yes, it's quite a fascinating result. Um, what they've discovered is, a, is a, a ring around Saturn. Well, I mean, obviously we know Saturn's associated with rings anyway, but this one is much further out, and it's very diffuse, and it's associated with uh, a moon, Phoebe. Now, the, the ring's enormous. Its radius is about 200 Saturn radii. The main rings, the Saturn radius, by the way, is about 60,000 kilometers. And the main rings that you could see through a small telescope, maybe a good pair of binoculars, they go out to about 138,000 kilometers. So that's just over two Saturn radii. So this is going out, you know, uh, to sort of 200. So it's an enormous distance. So if you were to look at a picture of this ring, Saturn would be a, a very small dot in the middle, I guess. Exactly. I mean, it's it's been compared to sort of saying if you could, if if you sort of knew where Saturn was in the sky, the the size of this, sort of the angular size in the sky, would would effectively be a sort of moon diameter on either side. Right. So more than half a degree or so. Yeah, it's, it's enormous, sort of by by any standards. And uh, the, the first question that, that people usually ask is, well, 
um, you're involved in it, this mission around Saturn, why didn't you see it? <laughs> and I'm trying to defend the, the, the project here. Um, we actually flew past Phoebe on the way into Saturn. In fact, the original trajectory of, of the Cassini spacecraft on the way in was changed to allow it to have a Phoebe flyby because we, we knew Phoebe was un, unusual in a number of respects. But one is, the most obvious one, is it goes around the wrong way. It's the, the first sort of largest satellite that you, co- you come across as you're going out of the Saturnian system that has a what's called a retrograde orbit. So uh, essentially, if you were looking above the north pole of Saturn as all the moons are, are re- moving around Saturn, they'd all be moving around in a, in a prograde sense, which is anti-clockwise. But this one is moving around clockwise. So there'd always been a suspicion that it was a, a captured object and we subsequently know in the meantime that a lot of objects, uh, a lot of these are regular moons that exist um, around the giant planets at these large distances. And the fact that the orbit is retrograde is usually a, a clue that um, it's not really part of the Saturn system or hasn't always been uh, that, it, that it's captured. So we knew, we knew that about Phoebe. And, and sure enough, when we passed by, we, we saw that it was, a, it was obviously a, a regular shaped object. And the, the consensus now is that it's a Kuiper Belt object. We see lots of impact craters and, and so on. So this is something from beyond the orbit of Neptune? And... Exactly. Something that's been that, that's come in towards the Saturn system and, and been captured perhaps quite early on in the solar system. And as I one of many objects, in fact dozens of, of moons in the outer part of the Saturnian system that that have uh, been, been captured over the years. And, and, and there's a growing suspicion also that they've, um, actually been colliding with each other. It's sort of it's still a collisionally evolving system, which is not what you usually think about when you think of sort of moons of, of planets. So if they collide, that would break them up as well? Yes, because not only they'd be breaking each other up, but they're also, I mean, every object in the solar system is subjected to a bombardment of one sort or another, but it seems like they're, they're, they're colliding with each other in, in the outer part of the Saturnian system. So we kind of, kind of knew these, knew these things, but, um, and of course we have instruments on board the spacecraft that would be able to detect impacts and are, are functioning perfectly well. And as we go near certain parts of the Saturnian system, when we cross the ring plane, for example, the, the instruments detect these, these impacts. So that's impacts with the spacecraft itself? Yes. I mean, most of the times we're talking about micron-sized particles. For example, there's a, there's an E-ring, which is a diffuse ring, which is out at the orbit of Enceladus, and we even know about the source of that. Um, it is Enceladus itself, material spewing out from the, the south polar region of Enceladus. And we can actually see that starting to, to, to you know, produce this, this ring, and that's a diffuse one as well. And we detect that, and we can clearly see in the, in the impact data on the spacecraft that uh, these micron-sized particles are, are hitting it. And micron-sized particles aren't a problem for the, for the spacecraft. We don't have to worry about anything until we get up to about centimeter size. But we've, we've clearly detected all these kind of impacts and in the, in, uh, these micro-impacts in the, in, on the spacecraft, but nothing was detected that I know of at Phoebe that would indicate the, the presence of a ring. Mm. But when you read about this result, you realize that the, this ring is so diffuse, they're talking about a few um, particles per cubic kilometer, right. <laughs> you know, <laughs> which um, is, it, that, that's really diffuse. Okay, so the chances of, of hitting that as you kind of go through the, the system, and you only had one go as we came in. Ever since we went into orbit, we've never got out anywhere near the distance of, of Phoebe, so it was just a, a one-off flyby as, as we came in. 
first of all, it's interesting on its own respect because the the, the speculation, when you see a, a very clear association with the, the orbit of the moon, as, as you've got in this case, the, the speculation is that the moon is actually the source of the material. Mm. And so that's what we think is going on. The estimates of the, the size of it, if you gathered up all the material, it would sort of fill about a one kilometer sized crater on Phoebe, and there are, there are plenty of craters like that. So it's, um, it isn't necessarily just one impact, it may be many impacts over the, over the age of the solar system. But it's, it is producing this material that we couldn't possibly have seen and would be almost undetectable with our instruments from within the Saturn system. But what is, I think, even more intriguing about this result, it's the last piece in a, in a jigsaw that does relate to, to Cassini observations. In fact, it goes back to the, the very first Cassini, which was Jean-Dominique Cassini, who was the director of the Paris Observatory in the late 17th, early 18th century, discovered several of, of Saturn's moons, um, including this very unusual moon called Iapetus, which was a major target for, for Cassini. And it was unusual because when he found it, he found it on one side of the planet that when it was actually moving away from, from Earth. And when it should have come around the other side of the planet, he couldn't find it. And he had to wait uh, 20 or 30 years before he got a better telescope that he could actually pick it up as it was coming towards him. Um, uh, like all astronomers, they always want a, want a better telescope. Um, so when he realized that he could, but only very faintly pick it out as it was coming towards him, he, he developed the theory that the only explanation was really that it was, a, it was literally a moon of two halves. One half was, was very bright, and that was the half that would be trailing so that you could see it on, as it was moving away from you, but the other half, the leading hemisphere, was uh, was very dark. So when it was coming back from behind the planet, moving towards you, it'd be very difficult to see. Mm. Now that actually implies something that we, we know is the case with the Apatis, because it's the same with our own moon, which is that it keeps the same face towards towards the planet. So it's tidally locked. Exactly, and it's a natural consequence of, of tidal evolution over the over the age of the solar system, and some moons get into that situation faster than others. So it's, it's the fact that it's, it is not that it's not spinning, but the moon spins roughly about once every 28 days, which is the same time it takes to orbit the planet. So from our point of view, we just see the same hemisphere. So that also implies that there's a, a leading hemisphere and a trailing hemisphere. Mm. And that's, that's essentially what is happening at Iapetus and lots of other Saturnian moons. And I think with Cassini's images from the spacecraft, you've been able to, to actually see the, the huge distinction between one side and the other side, haven't you? Well, that's right. I mean, these were very carefully planned observations because we really had one close flyby of, of Iapetus. And the idea was to get in a situation where the difference between the dark hemisphere and the bright hemisphere was actually illuminated. So um, we had to be able to see that. And this was all done. We got these incredible images because up until that point, you have to consider the situation. Is this essentially a, a dark moon with a, with um, bright stuff on one side or a, or a bright moon with dark stuff on one side? Mm. And if where did this stuff, wherever it is, come from? Is it from outside or is it something internal in the, in the moon itself that was producing it? And a theory was proposed by a guy called Steve Soter back in the, um, 1974. And it's a, it's a sort of classic in sort of planetary science in that it was the abstract of a conference contribution. So he presented at a conference. I think astronomers would recognize this, um, but never actually followed it up with a paper. Um, so it's not a published paper. It's a, and every, it's one of the most famous in planetary science circles, one of the most famous unpublished papers, but everybody knew about its existence. Um, and it's the idea that 
Well, perhaps the coating, and if it is a coating on the apophytus, came because it's dark and kind of reddish, like Phoebe is. If Phoebe was impacted by something and the material came off Phoebe, it would spiral in under non-gravitational forces, like a thing called Pointing-Robertson drag and there are other processes. And the first thing it would hit would be Iapetus. So Iapetus acts, um, it's been described in various races as sort of, um, you know, like flies on, on the windscreen of a car as you're moving along. So it's just sweeping up as it goes. Right, goes so it's through. getting splattered by the cosmic flies. from Exactly. And I think to, to a few of us, it always was the best theory and always was suggestive that the material was external. I mean, the whole tying in with the fact that it was the the leading hemisphere that was that was um, almost covered with this stuff all, all just seemed to, to work. So this, if you like, was the final sort of smoking gun that you're seeing Phoebe and this ring of material. So there's no question now that there there is material associated with Phoebe, almost certainly associated with impacts on, on Phoebe. And we know just dynamically that material will evolve inwards. And it may be that it's not just coating um, Iapetus, it will coat other moons as well as it goes through the system. The next one in after Iapetus is Hyperion. But that's unusual because it's actually rotating chaotically and it's tumbling and spinning up and spinning down. So if you like, it gets spread all over with uh, <laughs> any stuff. So um, the signature may be there, but it's um, it's kind of different than the sort of leading trailing hemisphere. So it's 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 a beautiful result. Not, obviously not a Cassini result with this new ring, but it ties in beautifully with the, the sort of observational data we, we've, we've got with Cassini and, and solves, if you like, this sort of 300-year-old mystery. Right. So, so is this ring quite young then? Would we have any idea what the age of the ring would be? Um, that would be very difficult to, to, to work out. But yes, the, there's a sort of a lifetime associated with it, with the particles because this effect of pointing Robertson light drag is most uh, efficient when it's um, acting on small particles and they just start spiraling in. So it, when you get measurements, um, hopefully these, these will come of what the actual size distribution of the particles is. You can kind of work out how long the, the ring could have been around there. Um, so it may be possible to, to work that out. But uh, it still takes time even for the material just to spread around the orbit from, a, from an initial collision. And there are all sorts of other forces operating. Right. So it will slowly move inwards towards Saturn then? Yes. Um, there, there's sort of an initial effect which is caused by radiation pressure, which causes large the orbits, which um, are kind of eccentric to begin with, to become very eccentric. And so you may get, in reality, the ring, they kind of, almost instantly go uh, produce particles that go and impact the the main rings even. Right. But the, the longer term effect is the um, the pointing Robertson drag and that's what causes the spiraling in. Right. Uh, just picking up another thing you said there about the smaller particles um, seeing more of feeling more of the drag, does that mean that you get a difference across the ring on the size of particles? So you have smaller particles on the inner side of the ring? Exactly. That, that's exactly the, the, the situation. In fact, there's a, there's a beautiful analogue of this in a completely different context in the, elsewhere in the solar system, which is in the asteroid belt. Um, we've, we've known for some time that there are families of asteroids, that there are sort of orbital groupings of asteroids that were always assumed to be originally one, uh, several larger objects that then split up because the asteroid belt is collisionally evolving. But the, the IRAS, that's the Infrared Astronomical Satellite, that was sort of active in the, in the early 1980s, dis- discovered that there are dust bands associated with these, these asteroid families. And the three main families, called the Themis, Eos, and Coronis, all had these bands associated with them. 
And so that's actually all those kind of observations have been um, refined since. In fact, it's an interesting story. A lot of the people who studied these originally weren't planetary scientists. They were actually um, galactic astronomers or even cosmologists who were studying the infrared background and wanted to get rid of the foreground (laughs) in order so that they could calibrate the the background. And so... um, we, we kind of realized at that, that stage that there was an awful lot of interesting dynamics going on here. And while they just kind of wanted to do it to get, to get rid of the, to get rid of the signal, um, or the noise as they saw it, that was essentially our signal. Um, and it's now realized, um, and a colleague, Stan Dermott, who, who discovered, um, with, with others looking at the IRAS data, that the, the, this dust from these, um, dust bands actually extends all the way into the Earth. And the Earth is like embedded in its own dust ring. And the source of this is not the Earth itself, but dust that's come from the asteroid belt and under pointing Robertson drag sort of is gradually spiraling in. And that you could, you could see these asymmetries in the, in the, in the IRAS data, which were consistent with our understanding of the dynamics of this dust as it approached the Earth. So it's, it's been a, a sort of a fascinating time in, the, the dust distribution kind of gives you a real insight into how things evolve in the solar system. It's all fascinating stuff, and it's amazing that there's still lots of stuff out there in the solar system that we you might think that we'd already know about, given that we've sent spacecraft out past it, but yep. we still are finding out about things in our in our backyard, as it were. Well, that's it. I think we have to understand our own backyard <laughs> in the first place. It's the, it's the most accessible part of the universe, so, so let's start there. So what other interesting results have you, in the past two years of Cassini, um, have you been working on particularly? Um, well, I think when I, when I last spoke to you, I, I was talking a lot about the F-ring, and I'm afraid I'm still kind of obsessed with this, <laughs> this ring. Um, and we, we published a paper in the summer of 2008 where uh, we finally kind of understood this bizarre structure in, in, in the ring. So the F-ring, F- just to remind people, was the one that had sort of spirals in it and an almost interlaced rings yeah i mean it's a bizarre system when we when we saw it first with well the first really good images were with the voyager spacecraft and which were flybys 1981. we saw this sort of twisted braided appearance of, of the ring that there seemed to be several strands and um, what we discovered early on with with cassini was that these these extra strands are actually spirals or have a spiral structure and the explanation for that was that there had been some impact on the rings, or maybe continuous impact, and that material that had started out in, as a sort of a radial jet from this impact had then, because of uh, essentially because of Kepler's third law, because things that um, things that are closer to the planet move faster than things that are further away, the material that started off radial just gets wrapped into a spiral. So when you're, you're looking at a close-up, you see multiple strands, but it's actually just one strand that is just kind of wrapped around the the ring. So we, we, we knew that from, from quite early on. Um, but we were trying to get down to the nitty-gritty of all the really detailed structure in, in the ring itself that you could see in, in the images. And we had taken a, a whole series of images um, at the time I was talking to you and, and since where we were we were constructing a mosaic. So we're trying to get a snapshot. Um, well, a snapshot, it takes about 16 hours to, to, uh, to take the snapshot because we're taking so many images. But the idea was to reconstruct like a 360-degree high-resolution mosaic of what the ring would look like. And we could see, when we did this, uh, we could see clearly these these jets. And even we were able to, to show in, in this paper that 
um, one object that we've been tracking since 2004, which is called S2004S6, goes on and off, collides with the core of the efferent. And we can actually see it in the images, and we can see that it is the, the sort of prime suspect for producing these, uh, some of these jets at least. And then these jets go off and they shear and they form new strands, and, and, and so the whole process continues. But there are other objects as well, some that we can't even see that are colliding with the core and producing these jets. In fact, it's the only kind of ring in the solar system where we can see almost on a daily basis the evidence for, for collisions. Because the, the collision velocities aren't sort of the interplanetary sort of sort of kilometers per second. They're more like sort of 30 meters a second. But it's sufficient at the F ring, we think, to break up some objects that may be in the core of the F ring and that then they form these jets and then they, they move around. So we can see those. We've also seen these things we call fans because they they have a fan-like structure. And we know that these are now caused by embedded moons that are in the middle of the F-ring on slightly eccentric orbits with respect to the F-ring. And as they kind of move up and down with respect to the, the core, they perturb the, all the dust that's around there. And these features kind of come and go on time scales of just a few hours. And, but in a fairly regular fashion. So they're really good clues as to where there are embedded objects in the F-ring. And there was also evidence for even smaller materials sort of down to a sort of kilometer level. Uh, all the kind of structures that we see in the F-ring, um, you know, could be explained by, by objects that are either perturbing the ring or kind of locally co colliding with the ring or even in the ring. So there's a whole range of populations of objects there. and it, it's still a puzzle in the sense that we, we're really trying to understand this detailed structure and kind of where it all comes from. And we have a situation where we've got this moon Prometheus, which is on the inside of the ring, which produces these beautiful, which we call streamer channel phenomena. So it kind of grabs material. We can just, it, it's beautiful because you see in gravity in action, it goes mm. close to the ring, drags material out. Then that ring doesn't actually hit Prometheus, but kind of goes back into the ring, produces channels in the ring, and then Everything kind of shears um, because of Kepler's third law. And Prometheus goes on and does the same again to another bit of the ring a few degrees further on. And then that shears. And we get these beautiful structures. So over and above everything else that's going on in the F-ring, we have about every 60 or so days at a particular location, Prometheus is going to come past and do its little bit to, to the ring. <laughs> so it's, it's an absolutely fascinating system. Because you used to think of Saturn's rings as beautiful, regular, um, almost unchanging structure. Yeah. And one of the things that's emerged with the F-ring is that uh, it's changing all the time, literally on time scales from, from hours, which is sort of the, the orbital period, sort of about 16 hours, right through to, to weeks, months, and in fact decades because of the, the way the orientation of Prometheus and the F-ring change over time. So it's a, an absolutely fascinating system that is, that is unique as far as I know in, in the solar system. The last few years, looking at the website, which gives you the pictures nearly well, every day from, from Cassini, and it's just amazing. Every day, you're surprised by new and amazing pictures. Yeah, well, um, imagine from my point of view, I have to try and explain <laughs> those new and amazing pictures. Yep. And I've done an awful lot of head scratching over the years. Um, but now that the sort of, at least for the F rings, sort of the picture that's emerging is. Uh, we're pretty sure that we understand what, what's going on. Every so often, there'll be some new image that shows something that I that I, I haven't seen before. But the general picture is emerging of a very dynamic, evolving system. And 
questions arise as to why, why this is happening there, um, and that's probably because of its location. It's it's because it's it's connected with the Roche limit. The idea of this location where the um, the, the gravitational attraction between two nearby objects is just about balanced by the, the tidal force that's disrupting them. And so um, so accretion maybe can take place, but at the same time disruption the tidal disruption is taking place. And so so we think there's a there's a balance going on there and several people have kind of studied that to, to, to figure out what's going on. So maybe that it's in a special location. So Cassini itself I think is in its extended part of its mission at the moment. Yeah, we're we're in what's what's called the the Equinox mission, um, which is the first extension to the to the four years. Then the summer of two thousand eight, we finished the nominal mission, and we were funded uh, to do they call the Equinox mission, and then the next phase, if it gets approved by NASA and if funding is available, uh, would be the Solstice mission, which would see it go from twenty ten right through to twenty seventeen. But um, we're, we've got our fingers crossed that we've got a really perfect working spacecraft at Saturn, and with all these things going on, um, I mean, I haven't talked about Titan and the changes that are going on there, and um, the atmosphere and the, the sort of jets from Enceladus. But um, there's so much more science to do, and in the mission where, you, where you're not doing a flyby, but you're actually in orbit around it, and as you can guess from the names, those for equinox and solstice, you're actually looking at over extremely long timescales. So these are the equinox and solstice for Saturn itself, not for the Earth. That's right. So last last August we had the the equinox, which is the Sun crossing Saturn's ring plane. So for the whole mission up to that point, it was the underside of the rings that had been illuminated by the Sun, and then in, in August the Sun just slowly moved from below the ring plane to to above, and we'd. Um, We'd been planning for this for, for quite some time. There were lovely Hubble images at the last ring plane crossing, which was, I think, around about 1994, 95. And um, we could see the uh, shadows of the moons right across the, the rings, but we'd never really seen this, this up close. And so we realized shadows were the key because you've got a situation where known moons, let's say, are casting shadows across the rings because the sun essentially is such a low elevation or like like you get on Earth, obviously, at the sort of close to sunrise or sunset. So they could tell you things about the, the vertical structure in, in the rings themselves, like where is the shadow cast and where isn't it, and how does the, the actual path of the shadow kind of change as you, as you look at it. So that was interesting. But even more interesting was the possibility of detecting vertical structure in the ring itself because of the shadow that it casts. And um, that turned out to be the case. So, for example, we found this object that we think might be about 400 meters across, sitting near the the outer part of the B ring. Um, no idea that it that it was there. There was no indication from any of the the images this object was there, um, and we could only detect it in these images because of the shadow that it was casting, which was um, much larger than it than itself. So we also find, for example, there's a, there's a there's a little gap about 30 kilometers wide near the edge of the A ring called the Keeler Gap. And we could see, we knew there was a moon in the gap. We we found it, it had been suspected in Voyager, but we found the moon uh, called Daphnis with, with the Cassini images. And as this, we also knew this moon was in a slightly inclined orbit with respect to the rings. But what we, we hadn't realized that we saw the images was this moon was therefore affecting the particles on either side. Well, we knew it would do that, mm. but it's giving them a slightly inclined orbit as well. 
and we could actually see the vertical structure because the, the structure was casting a shadow. So it's pulling them up and or down out of the, the rings? That's right. So as it was going up and down, it was the, uh, this is the beauty. We could, even though the, the particles were um, you know, perturbed below the rings, the shadow could still be seen because the shadow was being cast. Let's say the sun was just below the, the ring plane. The shadow was being cast below the ring plane, but actually the effects of the shadow could be seen above the ring plane. Right. So we could get all these kind of beautiful observations. The, the particles of dust on the, the edges of the ring near Daphnis, how far in into the ring in, in distance do does the perturbation go in pulling things up out of the, the ring? Well, it varies from sort of moon to moon, but in this situation it's sort of tens, maybe hundreds of, of kilometres. Um, it's, a, it's a beautiful effect. They produce wakes, and, and similar in a way to the to the wakes that you get on a, on a boat um, that crosses or a very calm lake. They move with the object. The bizarre thing is, when, when you first see it, it, it looks bizarre, is that... Um, it's sort of asymmetric. On, uh, as you look um, on one side of the, the ring, let's say the inside of the, the gap, the material is um, ahead of the moon. On the outside, it's behind the moon. So that, that's sort of the opposite way around than you'd think for a wake of a boat. Well, that's, it's all on the same side. You obviously would be bizarre if you saw the wake ahead of the boat, yeah. wouldn't you? So it would be something unusual. But this is just Kepler's laws. What you, what you understand is that the material that's on the inside of the gap is moving faster than Daphnis. So it's caught it up being perturbed by it and is now moving ahead of it. Ah, so the perturbed okay. region is ahead. Likewise, the material on the outside um, has encountered Daphnis as, as Daphnis has, has approached. And there's a downstream um, that you see the, the, the perturbation. So that's why you get this say somebody When you first see it, you think, hang on, there's something strange <laughs> going on here. Yeah. But it's actually it's beautiful against Kepler's laws in, in action. And so on either side of the, the ring, so it's not just, you get obviously the largest perturbation from the, the closest material, but you still get perturbations all the way in. And you can see this actually more clearly at the anchor gap, which is about a 300-kilometer gap further in. It's got a moon pan uh, that's right in the middle of the gap. And you can see beautifully the edge waves that it creates. And then the wavelength uh, just depends on the separation, the radial separation from the satellite orbit. But the amplitude of the wave depends on how close it is. That's how much it goes out of the, the plane. Well, that's out of the plane or in the plane. Um, you better get, get both. But if you just consider in the plane, you get this, this wake um, phenomenon. If you kind of draw the little streamlines of the particles that paths that you would get. You, you see this beautiful wake, wake phenomenon and, and essentially this is just a three-dimensional version of that that we're seeing um, with staffness at the, at the Keeler Gap. So it's a beautiful, beautiful structure which I suppose we kind of thought would be there but it's, it's so nice to see because you're so used to thinking that the rings are just in, in a plane where we, we, the typical thicknesses of the rings, remember, are almost certainly less than 100 metres and given that they're going out, the main ring's going out to 138,000 kilometres, they're extremely thin. So anything that's even a few hundred metres or a few kilometres out of the ring plane is enormous on this sort of scale. These are all fascinating images. We'll try and put links to, or put some of these images on our web pages or provide links to them as well, because people really should go and see them. They are fascinating Definitely. things to look at. Beautiful as well. Thank you very much for taking time to talk to us. I could listen to this all day because it is fascinating stuff. And um, best of luck with, with your work on Cassini in, into the solstice phase of the mission. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks, Stuart.
Thanks, Stuart. And you can find lots of links to the previous interview and to the photos and all of the news on the Jodcast show notes, which you'll find on the Jodcast website at www.jodcast.net. Adam, you've got some news about NASA. Okay, so within the next month, NASA has two Twitter-based events happening, um, so-called tweet-ups, which is, I'm sure, a derivative of meetup. So NASA are hosting an event on the 21st of October with 35 of its Twitter followers, Nicole Scott and Jeff Williams, two astronauts which, who will be situated on the space station at that time, will be talking to these 35 people. They'll present at NASA headquarters in Washington. The second tweet-up will be happening on the 12th of November to coincide with the launch of the space shuttle Atlantis. And 100 Twitter followers of NASA are invited to this event. Unfortunately, the sign-up date is the day we are currently recording this, so if you're only learning about it now, I'm afraid it's probably too late because it's uh, it's down as a first-come, first-served event. But if you've been lucky enough to have signed up previously, we'll be uh, welcome at the Kennedy Space Center in Florida for a tour and also uh, a number of events occurring during the day prior to the launch. NASA seem to be really into Twitter at the moment. They've got quite a few of the astronauts have Twitter accounts, and even a lot of the spacecraft that NASA have up can be followed on Twitter. It was quite interesting seeing Elcross's approach to the moon. He was quoting the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy <laughs> as it went down. But I oh think, no, not again. <laughs> <laughs> what's this thing? What shall I call it? Oh, right. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that these tweet-ups are something that's going to be happening quite regularly, and they are welcoming people from all over the world if you can afford to get there. So if you plan to go to one, please let us know and maybe you could report back to us about it. And if you are in the Vatican City, you can go along and see an exhibition all about Galileo that the Vatican is putting on. And if you're in the region of Mercury, then you will have seen Messenger fly past. And this happened on the 30th of September, 1st of October. There are some pretty pictures to be seen, so go along and look at the link that we have on the Jodcast show notes. Uh, the National Geographic have also just put up on their website uh, another pretty picture. It's a map of the solar system with the number of missions from Earth to various solar system bodies plotted in nice little dotted lines. It makes quite an attractive image and it also highlights how often we've been to some places. And for the really far away stuff, such as uh, Uranus and Neptune, it's expected arrival dates for objects that are on their way. And the last bit of news is that during Moonwatch, which is also the same week as the Manchester Science Festival, From Earth to the Universe is an exhibition that will be on at the Museum of Science and Industry in Manchester. There will also be astronomers from Jodrell taking to the streets of Manchester with telescopes. So there you go. But now, on his own, for once, to answer your questions right here, right now, here is Tim O'Brien with Ask an Astronomer. Hi. So this month we've had uh, several questions sent in. Um, the first one's from Richard Jarrold, uh, and he says, I live near Jodrell Bank and see it most days. I often wonder whether your radio telescopes operate day and night, and also what difference does the weather make to radio observations? Well, if you keep an eye on the uh, on the big Lovell telescope, at least, the, um, Richard, you'll see that we do operate day and night. Um, it turns out that uh, you can do radio astronomy during the day just as much as you can during the night. The reason why you can't do normal sort of optical astronomy, if you like, d during the day is because the sky's too bright. So basically visible light from the sun um, scatters off the Earth's atmosphere and, and the blue wavelengths scatter more than the red wavelengths. So the, so the sky appears blue 
Um, and that basically swamps the, the faint sort of visible light uh, coming from the stars. But the radio waves that are coming from the sun um, don't scatter by anything uh, anything like what the uh, the visible light scatters by. So in fact, the radio sky is effectively dark during the day, just like it is at night. Um, so you can actually do radio astronomy 24 hours a day in principle. And you'll see the telescope moving around doing that, uh, certainly when there's no painting work going on in the summer, which is just about just about finished now this summer. Um, we do have to worry about weather conditions though. Um, the biggest problem is, is high wind and that's because you've got these very large structures. Um, the Lovell Telescope at Jodrell is 76 metres in diameter, the, the, the dish, the collecting area. And so you've basically got a huge sail. And if the wind sort of blows into that sail, if you've got the dish tipped over, sort of looking towards the horizon somewhere and the wind gusts into that, into that huge metal dish then it could could exert a strong enough force to actually blow the whole thing down which would be a complete nightmare um, certainly the controller who's on duty doesn't want to be the one um, responsible for uh, looking after the telescope when it blew down so they keep a very close eye on the wind speed um, and basically speeds of sort of 20 to 40 miles an hour when you're getting into that region we have to start taking um uh, steps to, to mitigate the effects of the wind and that basically means observing at higher elevations so at angles greater angles above the horizon and eventually when the wind gets sufficiently strong you have to park the telescope point it straight upwards um, and that presents the least resistance to the wind and you actually turn it around so that the two towers that hold the ball up are in line with the wind direction. Um, there have been incidents in the past where uh, where it came close to blowing down. There was an incident in 1976 when a big, an unexpected gust of wind came in from the side, and it sort of actually made the two towers um, tilt over, which uh, which actually sort of skewed the whole telescope, and it meant that where the telescope was held up, the weight of the telescope was held up by a central um, wheel girder. It's called that. That slid along and came within. Uh, uh, a centimetre or so of actually slipping off the support underneath and if that had happened the whole thing would have come down and some um, bright spark in the control room realised that the thing to do was to turn the telescope round um, through 180 degrees and the next gust of wind straightened it up again. Amazing enough but true. Um, and then afterwards um, some diagonal struts were put in to brace the whole thing against that sort of uh, that sort of skewing. Um, the last thing to say about the weather really is that um, is that something like um, rain, for example, wet weather, can be a problem at the higher frequencies. So it's less of a problem at the at the lower frequencies, the longer wavelengths we use. So, say, um, frequencies we're talking about, maybe a few gigahertz. Um, so that's a few uh, billion hertz um, wavelengths around 20 centimetres or so. You don't see much of an effect there. But as you go to the higher frequencies heading up towards the highest frequency we observe with at Jodrell is, is 22 gigahertz at the moment, so wavelengths of a few centimetres, um, then you do start to see an effect. And it's when you get into those areas, um, uh, those sorts of shorter wavelengths, higher frequencies, then you need to try and get up above uh, a lot of the water vapour, for example, get up on mountains or even you know get up on a satellite. Okay, um, next question is from Jeff Mutton. Um, and Jeff uh, asks about Sirius. Um, so Sirius is the... Uh, the the brightest star in the sky after the sun uh, and he says how old is Sirius it's old enough to have a white dwarf companion no planetary nebula nebula or any trace of its previous life um, he's read a recent article on the age of Procyon a similar star to Sirius but there was no hint about Sirius in that paper 
um, and he's just wondering what we know about it. Well, um, I found a, an interesting recent um, paper about Sirius and its age, which um, we could link to on the website. Um, but first to say that, first of all, Sirius, it's a well, obviously it's a star that we see um, most nights when it's clear, very obvious, very bright star um, during the winter months particularly. Um, it's a binary star, so there's actually two components. We call them Sirius A and Sirius B. We know a lot of things about Sirius, of course. It's so, so bright that people have observed it now for, for many years, of course. The binary period is about 50 years, so it takes about 50 years for the stars to orbit one another. Um, we, we know we've got a very good distance to Sirius from, from parallax using the Hipparchos satellite, so that's, that's useful. Um, we can also watch the orbit, just, just sort of watch the stars move in their, in their orbit from astrometry, measuring positions of the orbit. And that means that we can, we can obtain the masses of the stars very accurately. Sirius A is about, uh, two solar masses, twice the mass of the sun. There's been a measurement of its size, um, its actual diameter from, from using the very large telescope interferometer in Chile. Um, and that's shown that its its radius is 1.7 times that of the sun, so it's you know twice as mass as massive, about 1.7 times the radius, and its luminosity is about 25 times that of the sun, so it's about 25 times brighter than the sun. And of course, what you can do with all this information is you can plug um, that into models of the structure of the star, which would predict. Um, the, the luminosity and the radius and so on as the star evolves. And that allows you to place it on um, a time sequence. So you can place the measured values onto a sequence of predicted values from the model, um, and that allows you to derive an age for the star. So it turns out that the age is something like about 240 million years. Now, Sirius B um, is the white dwarf star. So a white dwarf is basically a star that's um, it would have originally been more massive than Sirius A. Um, Sirius A hasn't evolved to become a red giant yet. Um, Sirius B will have evolved faster. It will have originally been more massive. It will have burnt its nuclear fuel more rapidly, um, expanded to become a red giant, and then an, what's called an asymptotic giant branch star. Um, it would have lost its outer layers, which had drifted out into space. The central part of the star where all the nuclear reactions took place um, when, when it runs out of fuel, that's just a dead star, but extremely hot, about the size of the Earth. We call it a white, a white dwarf star. So, um, the expanding outer layers that went out from the outer, from the outer parts of the, the AGB, the asymptotic giant branch star, they expand out into space and they, they're lit up by the hot core of the star, the exposed core of the star, and they're, they're lit up and, and, and become uh, visible as a, as a planetary nebula. So we, what we know about, um, about Sirius B is we can measure its temperature now quite accurately. It turns out that it's, that it's effective temperature, roughly its surface temperature is about 25,000 degrees compared to say it's about 5,800 degrees for the sun. So it's quite hot. Remember it was the core of a, of a star. It's where all the nuclear reactions used to take place. So it starts off incredibly hot and then gradually, um, cools down over many, many, many millions of years. I mean, some white dwarfs probably won't cool down for the age of the universe. We can measure its mass. Um, we can measure its mass to be to be one solar mass, more or less exactly, uh, again, from measuring the binary motion, the same, the same technique that allowed us to get the mass of the other star in the system, Sirius A. So from those two bits of information, from the mass and the temperature, it turns out you can work out how old the white dwarf star is by looking at models of how white dwarf stars cool. So you can get a cooling age, which turns out to be about 125 million years.
something like that. So in fact, you've got a sort of binary star system, which you, you assume both stars formed at the same time. So that's about 240 million years old, which you get from the age of Sirius A. And then you know that the white dwarf star has been around for 125 million years or so. So what it's telling you is that the, the white dwarf, the star that became the white dwarf, the progenitor of the white dwarf, um, was a sort of living star, a star that had nuclear burning going on in it for about 120 million years, basically the difference between 240 and 120 or so. Um, so about 120 million years, you had this nuclear burning life of this star, and then it ran out of fuel, it ejected its uh, planetary nebula, um, and it was left behind, left behind a white dwarf. Now, in fact, because you know what the nuclear burning lifetime, uh, you know, the lifetime of the star that became the white dwarf uh, of Sirius B was, you know, it lasted for 120 million years, we can actually compare that to stellar models, and we can say that a star with an initial mass of five times the mass of the sun would have a lifetime of 120 million years. So what we've got now is information that Sirius B was originally a five solar mass star, whereas Sirius A is a two solar mass star still. The five solar mass star lived, you know, lived fast and died young, um, burnt, lost, lot, burnt, ran out of fuel um, after about 120 million years. And in that process, in the latter stages of that process, when it becomes a giant star, it returns about four solar masses of material to the interstellar medium, leaving behind this one solar mass white dwarf. And that fits, all these numbers turn out to fit pretty well, cross, you know, cross-check these against all the various models. They're telling us that our stellar models for these processes are, are actually pretty good. Um, so there we go, four solar masses of material return to the ISM, and of course it's that material that um, forms the raw material for the next generation of stars. Now of course, as um, as Jeff points out, there is no visible planetary nebula there, but then, you know, that planetary nebula was ejected about 120 million years ago, um, and the planetary nebula we see, you know, the beautiful images we see with the Hubble Space Telescope, they're typically only uh, a few thousand years old, really. So, you know, basically, uh, as the central star um, dims, um, the planetary nebula drifts out into space, mixes up with the rest of the interstellar medium, the whole thing basically just fades away. So the planetary nebula phase is not a very long-lived phase, so it's no surprise we don't see anything 120 million years later. Okay, next question is from Paul Gibson. Um, and Paul asks about um, material falling into a, a black hole. Uh, and he says, as far as I can understand, matter that falls into a black hole takes an infinite amount of time to do so, according to a faraway observer. Does that mean that all active galactic nuclei will always appear as accretion disks to outsiders? Okay, so I guess what, um, um first of all, say, say Paul's absolutely right. Um, the way that, uh, uh, the gravitational effect of the black hole affects, um, the way we see something as it falls towards the black hole is that as the, as an object gets closer and closer and closer towards, towards the, the so-called event horizon, the point um, beyond which nothing can escape, not even light, because the gravitational uh, pull of the black hole is so strong. And if you imagine something falling towards that event horizon, perhaps carrying a clock with it, from the point of view of us as a sort of external observer watching this, the clock would tick slower and slower and slower and slower as it got closer to and closer and closer to the event horizon. So he's right, it, it, would, it would take an infinite amount of time for that for that matter, that, that clock that's falling in, um, to, to, to reach the event horizon from our perspective. Of course, from the perspective of the material falling in, then it just passes through the event horizon without particularly noticing it. 
so yeah, an infalling body would appear to be frozen at the event horizon. Now, what he then mentions, he says, does that mean that all active galactic nuclei will always appear as accretion disks to outsiders? Well, an active galactic nucleus is is this sort of supermassive black hole at the core of a of a galaxy, and the supermassive black hole is being fed material, materials falling in towards it, and as it falls in, it orbits around the black hole, and so we get this thing called an accretion disk, a disk of matter that's swirling around, um, accreting, being being falling onto the black hole and into the event horizon, sort of feeding feeding the black hole at the core, and this stuff gets very hot, and a lot of the gravitational potential energy that's available from falling in from large distances into the black hole can be liberated as 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 light across a wide range of the of the electromagnetic spectrum we see these things shine as the very bright uh, quasars for example so the question is will will they always appear to have accretion disks since that everything gets frozen as it reaches the event horizon now one of the things that, that that's a sort of a but here that you've got to remember, yes, it's true that stuff would appear frozen at the event horizon. But what, what we've got to think about is, is the light that's being produced by the body that's falling in. What happens as that body approaches the event horizon is that the light that it's producing is increasingly um, redshifted, gravitationally redshifted. So it's made redder and dimmer. Um, as it's, as it basically tries to work, you know, it's, it's, it's getting out of this huge, deep gravitational well of the black hole. And so it's not got to the event horizon yet, so it can escape. But as it escapes, it's stretched out to redder and redder, longer and longer wavelengths. Um, and indeed the photons, as they come out, they, they arrive at an observer separated by longer and longer time intervals. So the rate of arrival of photons reduces as well. So that means that as, that material sort of crosses the event horizon, it's actually infinitely redshifted and unobservable. So, um, so in fact, that sort of counteracts this, this effect of being able to sort of just imagine seeing stuff frozen at the event horizon. Actually, it just sort of fades away as it approaches the event horizon. So stuff will still fall in. And of course, you know, the, the accretion disk, if you stop fueling the accretion disk, stop adding stuff to it, then it will all eventually just sort of disappear into the event horizon. So there isn't any sort of paradox or anything about, about that. You, you know, these things can just, will, can just fade away. And therefore, you can have a supermassive black hole that just isn't bright because it isn't doesn't have an accretion disk. It's either uh, it's just stopped being fed for some reason. Maybe it was fed by the interaction of two galaxies crashing into each other, produces a sort of burst of activity as extra stuff falls into the black hole. But that process doesn't necessarily last forever. And this idea that stuff's infinitely frozen doesn't doesn't mean we should always see activity from these systems. The last question we have for this month is uh, from Sean Mulcahy. I hope I've pronounced that right, Sean. And he says, uh, hi everyone. Since ancient times, when constellations were first imagined by our ancestors, have any of them changed shape so much that perhaps they wouldn't be recognized today if somehow somebody from the past was catapulted forwards 2000 or so years? Okay, so the the short answer f to that is yes. Constellations do change shape, and the reason for that is because the stars aren't fixed on the sky. Although we, you know, if you look at the sky night after night, you see these sort of basically fixed patterns of stars, and obviously it, the ancients noticed that some of these star-like things moved differently. They wandered about on the on the sky, and so they named them planets from the, from the Greek for wanderer. Um, 
but they move because they're orbiting the, the sun, they're very much closer to us. However, the stars themselves do move, they're not fixed in space, they are, for example, the stars in the Milky Way are orbiting the centre of the Milky Way, we, we orbit the Milky Way once every 220 million years or so. And as stars do that, they don't go in very nice, perfect circular orbits. They sort of oscillate up and down and there's various um, perturbations. They're, they're born in clusters that are each moving with their own relative velocities and there's gravitational interactions and so on. So you've got to allow for the fact that stars can be moving, you know, in space, sort of, if you like, relative to the galaxy by maybe velocities of, say, between a few and a and hundred kilometers per second or so. Now that's, you know, big velocities. The Earth's moving around its orbit at 30 kilometers per second. Um, so it's high speeds, but of course the stars are very, very far away. So when you work out how fast they appear to be moving on the sky, and we'd measured that in terms of an angle, changing their position as a change in the angle. If you pointed at the star at one point and then the star moved and you changed the direction in which you were pointing, the angle through which you'd move your arm would be would be that change in angle, angular position. We measure um, these motions of stars in units of arc seconds per year. So an arc second is actually one three thousand six hundredth of a degree. So it's a very small angle. The, la the, the star with the largest motion, we call this motion proper motion, um, this sort of resulting from the actual uh, movement of the star through space. The largest uh, proper motion measured is for a star called Barnard's star, and it's about 10 arc seconds per year. So it's not very, you know, it would take, um, take six years for it to, to move by an arc minute. Um, it would take uh, 360 years for it to move by a degree. But that's the very fastest, and in fact, much more typically, um, stellar proper motions are something like a tenth of an arc second per year. Now, if you work out how long that would take to move uh, for the star to change its position by one degree, it turns out to be about 36,000 years. So when you think about the size of the, the visible constellations, they are measured in degrees um, across, certainly, maybe some tens of degrees, depending on the constellation. And so um, it does take thousands of years for them to move, but it is measurable. So I guess in 2,000 years, which, which Sean mentioned, you'll get some slight change, but certainly over the course of 5,000, 10,000, 20,000 years, you will start to see significant changes in the shape of constellations like, you know, the plough, for example, um, and, and other famous, famous constellations. So it's not, it happens, but it doesn't happen, doesn't happen very fast. Okay, that's about it for this month. So if you've got any uh, more questions you'd like us to to have a look at, then send them in to the uh, to the Jogcast. You'll find uh, a web form on the website for sending in your questions, and I'll speak to you again next month. Thanks, Tim. And actually, we'd like your responses. Do you like it just being Tim? Or would you like to have the old style of question and answers? Do get in touch and let us know how we can change the Jogcast for the better. And in fact, one of the questions that we're asking ourselves is, as we enter our fourth year, should we change the music? It's something that comes up all the time. If you have any thoughts, then please do get in touch. You can use the usual channels. Can we do a heavy me metal version of it? No. Please. No. Oh. Please. No. It's two against one. You're juniors. It would sound awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you get the remix, we'll think about it. Okay. In fact, some of you have already been giving uh, giving us your feedback, and the perennial favourite, Stella, says, Tell Ian that the Orionids enter the atmosphere at rather faster than 41 kilometres per hour. 
At that velocity, Usain Bolt could catch a falling star. And J.R. Edge has uh, been in touch to say, uh, in the piece on Planck, absolute zero is now minus 273 degrees Kelvin. That would be cold, but he does say that it was been a good, interesting show. And uh, over on Facebook, we've got um, we've got three bits of feedback, but only from two people. And first off, we have uh, Philip Lurich, who appears to have observed all the natural bodies in the solar system in one morning or one day, which is rather an impressive feat. And I wonder whereabouts in the world he happened to be. He got Mercury, Saturn, and Venus in the morning. Oh, and Mars, and Jupiter, Uranus, and Neptune later on. I guess Earth was probably the easiest. <laughs> <laughs> And also managed to see two of the Galilean moons of Jupiter. Very impressive. And secondly, from uh, Graham Guy, we've had a, a quick thank you for saving him a small fortune on buying audiobooks by being a free podcast. So if you want to add your voice to our feedback section, you can get in touch with us via the website at www.jodcast.net. You can go to the forum at forum.jodcast.net. You can go to YouTube at youtube.com forward slash jodcast. Find us on Facebook at jodcast.net forward slash Facebook. And as always, we're on Twitter at twitter.com slash jodcast. So that just leaves us to thank Steve Owens and Carl Murray. Stuart has been our editor this time. And until next time, jod on. Bye. Bye.